the way the regulator at the moment allocates slots, it's mostly on the basis of who used them before. The rest uh, is mostly where they try to deliberately give slots to small airlines. Um, because that's how they want to get some competition into the system. The problem with that is that that's not necessarily how markets become more competitive. The liberalisation of the aviation sector has been a major success story in recent decades. The competitive pressures brought by the emergence of newer and lower cost airlines has meant hundreds of millions more trips every year for vacations as well as business travel. And yet behind this success lays an antiquated takeoff and landing slot allocation system that decides when airlines can and can't operate. The government has just announced plans to review these rules, promising smoother getaways and cheaper prices. Welcome back to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question. Today's question, could airport slot reform deliver cheaper flights? To discuss, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Christian Niemitz. He's the IEA's Head of Political Economy, as well as the author of Terminal Problem, the case for a market-based airport slot allocation system. Now, Christian, let's start with the obvious question, what are slots? Right, so a takeoff and landing slot is simply the right to use a particular runway at a particular time of the day and to use all the associated infrastructure around that. So the logistics, the air traffic control and all that. And I would say until maybe 30 years ago or so, or a bit more maybe, uh, economists wouldn't have thought of a slot as an asset in the economic sense. They would have thought of that as just an arrangement between the airline and the airport operator in the way that say we're using the studio now, but we're not thinking of ourselves as the owners of a podcast slot. But if mm-hmm. uh, if that became, if the studio, uh, if there was much higher demand for it and we had external people using it all the time, renting it, at some point we would start to think of it uh, in very much you know, like economists. We'd, we would think of it as an economic asset and it could be tradable, you could borrow and uh, use it as, a, as collateral and whatever. Well, I, uh, and you'll be glad to hear that I think there are plans afoot to make the iGaze podcast studio a, uh, an asset that is as tradable and, and accessible by, by outsiders. But that, that's perhaps a good time to advertise that to anyone who's, uh, who's listening or, or watching this podcast. Yeah, hit the subscribe button. Hit, hit the subscribe button and get in touch if uh, you'd like access to our excellent studio. I mean, I suppose the essential question there becomes, uh, okay, so these have become an asset largely because uh, as you're getting out, there's congestion at airports. Yeah. Um, and then therefore somebody needs to make a decision about who gets to take off when and where. Uh, that is, which airline gets to do it, and, and then of course the airline decides where they fly and how. So there's kind of like a very big economic question at the heart of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I suppose the, 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 uh, the economist uh, asks, how is the system currently operating? Who decides that? Yeah, that's the thing. Um, uh, firstly, it is, as, as you said, uh, as long as you have sufficient capacity, it doesn't really matter. Um, because that's uh, it's only become a problem because the airports, at least the, the busy ones, the major ones, Heathrow, uh, Gatwick, have become massively congested. And therefore, you have lots of different airlines who want to use runways at the same time. And that's why it starts to matter. And oddly enough, at the moment, we have a system where 
it is a government entity which makes that choice. So before I looked into this uh, for the first time about 10 years ago, I just naturally assumed that that's the airport operator who gets to decide that. In the same way in which uh, if somebody runs a shopping center, they get to decide whether a particular place becomes a Tesco or Weatherspoons or something else. And I thought, well, airports are probably like that too. They decide whether to give a slot to British Airways or to Lufthansa or uh, American Airlines or whatever, but it's not. Um, there is a government regulator which makes those choices, but not in an arbitrary way. So there is a set of rules which they have to apply. It's fairly inflexible. Um, but it does mean the airports themselves have very little control over this. It is a government dictator process. And what what is the current decision-making process? If, if I'm a, a new airline startup and I, I want to start taking off some, uh, setting up some flights at Heathrow or Gatwick or Stansted or any other congested airport, what can I do? Okay, so there's two major ways in which they are allocated. The, the first one is that uh, most slots are simply given to the airline that's been using them before. Yeah. So if you use um, the Heathrow uh, second runway um, at uh, Tuesday one o'clock, you've used it in the previous season or you're using it now, you have an automatic right to use it again in the next season, uh, which means it can just be rolled over in perpetuity. So you, so you have British Airways using a slot and if as long as they keep using it, that can they can carry on doing that forever. And that effectively freezes uh, an allocation in time. So by the time it became an issue and these rules came into force, uh, whatever was the situation then uh, is still pretty much the situation now. And that is, I think, at the, uh, at the, the big airports, something like 90% or so of the slots are allocated in that way. Uh, and so I think most of the most valuable slots, yes. you're going to want to yeah. hold on to them year to year, the, the prime yeah. time. Uh, yeah, slots. so there the answer, if you're a new airline and you want to get in, what can you do? Well, there, not very much. The slot <laughs> has to become free. Uh, it's these other 10%, that's where the, the regulator can use some, some more discretion. Uh, and then uh, that would be the second thing, once a slot gets liberated, uh, meaning maybe, say, the airline goes bankrupt or whatever, uh, then the, the regulator has some choice over who to give it to, but even then uh, they have rules to apply, so half of those slots again uh, are then given to small companies, small airlines. Small, I think, is defined as having a market share at an airport of less than 5%. So the idea is they want to promote competition, uh, but again, it would not be... Um, so there may be some other airline that may be in a better, better position to use it, but they are not going to get it. It is that regulator applying those rules. If you get it under those rules, then it's yours. And those rules, where do they, where do they derive from? In the British case, uh, they are EU rules. So they were, as long as we were an EU member, we, we mm. just applied them like everyone else. Uh, but it goes a bit beyond. So Switzerland uh, never had to apply them, but they just sign up to it anyway. And the EU got them from uh, what was it it's called? The international. It's IATA, the the uh, basically the association, the International Airline Association. Yeah. Um, so a global body, and therefore you get somewhat similar rules in other places, and um, that's why it has become an issue now. Now that we are no longer in the EU and and the transition period has ended, uh, we can deviate from that. Wasn't possible before, so it's not a complete coincidence that Britain is the first country that considers moving away from that, and Britain is more suitable for that because, well, we have the, the most congested airports.
So I think it's worth unpacking where these rules ultimately do derive from, which is EU rules, which the UK can now drive from, but also IATA itself are the lobby group for largely for the incumbent airlines. Yeah. So they've effectively designed a system that gives the, the landing and takeoff rights in perpetuity, as long as they keep in using them, to the major airlines that they represent. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's, sometimes the, the conspiracy is true, which is to say the, the, uh, the major airlines have managed to design and, and more or less yet globally implemented some rules that are pretty beneficial to themselves. And that explains the results, that uh, even though it's now been 30 years uh, since the liberalisation process began or more, and we still have the major airports are still dominated by the airlines that had near monopoly rights at the time. So that would be British Airways in the case of Heathrow, uh, but it's not even an unusual example. So Paris, uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport still has Air France as the major airline, Ma major meaning have something like half of the slots there. Um, Frankfurt has the same issue with Lufthansa, they have I think even more, um, Amsterdam the same thing. And you would think after so many years of fairly intense competition between airlines, that should have shifted. There can of course be reasons, people might have a, an attachment to British Airways uh, for patriotic reasons or whatever. Uh, I just don't think that's really what explains these outcomes because choosing a different airline is not that you make a major commitment, it's the kind of market where Firstly, you don't have much of an emotional investment in it and the cost of getting it wrong isn't that high. It's, it's a market where I would expect a higher degree of, of churn and, and, and turnover changes. And, and I think at the heart of this, and you, you unpack this in your paper, the, the incumbents are massively benefited. There's, there's less, potentially less competition than there should be. Um, but also, you're effectively giving away what is a, a scarce and very valuable resource. Yeah. When, they, when these are trade, there is a, a way of trading them on the secondary market, they, they go... You know, a relatively um, un untimely slot at, at Heathrow can go for five million, and some of the most timely ones can go for fifty million. Um, so, so they've been given by a regulator uh, these incumbent airlines a, a massively valuable privilege. Yes. And that's because uh, when that system came into force, uh, they didn't uh, probably, uh, they just didn't really think of it that way yet. It was before the airports were as congested as they are now, and that's where that value comes from. And um, But we now have this issue that uh, these, these resources weren't, uh, well, they probably didn't even think of them as resources at the time. It was just, okay, you've been using this slot, you can use it again, you've got this right. And over time, they became actual assets and they became more and more valuable. So for a company like British Airways, their holding of slots could well be, I don't know what their portfolio looks like, but that is worth as much as having a, a, a fleet of airplanes. That, that is a proper asset and, um, yeah, except, uh, of course, they have to buy their planes. They don't have to buy those slots. That is just inherited and uh, give as, as a gift from the regulator. And, and I think the other practical problem in this, which you also go into, is this question about is it leading to a, a good allocation of, of use of those um, slots? Because the, the, the incentive, obviously, for BA is just to keep flying, keep and using them, whether or not they're necessarily the best airline to use it and whether or not they, they want to uh, use it to go to what is the highest demand um, route at the highest demand time. Yeah, so that that is the issue that um, they just keep using them. Uh, well, up to a point, you, you have to use them somewhat. If you're not using yes. them at all, then you can lose a slot. So it's an automatic right to keep using it, but not an unconditional right. Uh, but that in itself leads to problems uh, that you have to keep using it even if you don't need it. 
Um, it's a bit like that's where we get things from, like the ghost flights that we had during the pandemic that uh, suddenly there was almost zero demand. Uh, but airlines had to keep using their slots because if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, it was briefly suspended, but then uh, air travel was slow afterwards and you had uh, planes being, well, the plane almost empty or, or even completely emptied and uh, a literal ghost flight, uh, where you had environmentalist groups protesting against this, uh, saying these planes have to be grounded, this is, this is absurd, this is insane. And of course it is absurd, you, you wouldn't fly an empty plane normally, but we have to think about why they do it. And the reason is they want to hold on to their slot. Yeah, I think there's a few interesting effects here. The, the first one potentially is that they fly smaller planes yeah. um, to quite random destinations that aren't necessarily worthwhile um, operating flights and objectively. So I think a practical outcome of a kind of a better allocation could be bigger, bigger planes to more popular destinations more often and therefore lower costs on those. Um, and then of course that, that ghost flight effect, which uh, this, this amazing time in which Greta Thunberg was uh, tweeting about these ghost flights. You have to think to yourself, it's good to see Greta finally getting involved in uh, the efficient allocation of um, airline slots as a major policy issue. Yeah, and she was right about that. She just didn't, uh, strangely enough, didn't think through the economics. Well, not particularly surprising. Okay, so we've kind of set up here that there's this very important, valuable question about who gets to take off um, when and where. The, the system was set up by the incumbents largely to their benefit. The current rules aren't necessarily Right. The UK government is now talking about reforming these rules that put out a consultation to do so. I wonder what, what you think about how a better system should be designed. What, how should we be making decisions about who takes off when and where? Yeah, in, in the paper that you mentioned, I try to think about it from first principles. Um, I, I try to ask myself, what if air travel was invented today? So mm. let's say the first plane takes off today. Uh, Nobody has ever seen an, an, an airplane before. Um, you would probably get specialized infrastructure providers uh, springing up and they would look pretty much like airports uh, because that makes sense to have that. They might be in different places but we would get something like that again. Uh, it's just that we wouldn't have any rules I think for how they should allocate their runway slots. I think we would think of it as the equivalent of so you running an ice rink and uh, you buy uh, and and you then uh, get to decide uh, who gets to use it and you have to limit it in some way in peak hours when everyone wants to use it uh, so that it doesn't get too congested and that would just be the business of the airports there would just be no policy they would come up with a pricing mechanism um, and that would just be their choice um, but of course we're not starting from zero, we're not starting from that position. Uh, we're starting from a highly congested uh, airport, uh, yeah, um, from a position where the infrastructure is extremely overused and, and it's a highly uh, complex arrangement that we have there between, yeah, potentially hundreds of different airlines and airports. Um, so, uh, yeah, we can't just reset it. Um, we could have auctions, and that is one of the proposals in that government review. It's just that they only seem to apply this to new airport slots. So they're saying if Heathrow gets permission to build a third runway, we could auction off those new slots that come into circulation. Uh, but they're not applying it to the ones that already exist, whereas I think it would make sense to ask, well, why should you have a, a perpetual right to keep using those? And that could just be a general arrangement that you have P1 
periodic auctions. Uh, I don't know what the, how you would do the, the timing for that or what type of auction, but what, whatever it is, let's say every five years, six years, seven years, uh, and then it resets and then you start again um, with a new allocation. And it could mean that once the new period starts, you get very different airlines at the airport that you're now used to seeing British Airways everywhere when, when you go to Heathrow. You're now used to seeing EasyJet uh, everywhere when you go to Gatwick. That might then be completely different in, an, in a different period. Um, another option would be to just give the airports the right to, uh, to charge accordingly. So when you have, um, when the runway is particularly sought after at Saturday one o'clock, um, British Airways wants to use it, American Airlines wants to use it, Lufthansa wants to use it, you just raise the charges. And if the current user then drops out, then well, then the slot goes to someone else. So I think the government is talking about um, some kind of uh, auction system. I think there's, there's probably a lot of appeal to that um, for, the, for the reasons that we usually kind of quite like markets, which is to say, whoever has the greatest need for and, and value that they could get out of salt would be willing to pay the most for it. There could be some kind of bidding process. I think you're right. It would, ha and, and there is a question, I think, even towards the end of the consultation about whether or not they should go to the next step and, and reset the current allocation um, as opposed to leaving it in place. Um, I suppose then within that, though, they're, they're then, and it was a recent Nobel Prize winner in, in just this question of how you design these things effectively, that they've been used for spectrum uh, for, for radio spectrum and um, mobile spectrum quite effectively for several years. But then there's also kind of like, there's, quest, there's questions within that. Um, so I think there's questions along the lines of, um, could you expect additional costs passed along uh, to passengers as a result of the auction system and making them pay for it um, as, as a first one? I'm wondering what you make of that. Um, yeah, it's, that's not an unreasonable concern. It's just that that will be additional revenue for the airport operator or whoever gets it, uh, that will be one of the questions that has to be addressed uh, first. Um, that's one of the problems at the moment. We don't know who actually owns a slot. It's never really been defined that well. But let's say it is the airport operator that gets it. Um, as long as the airport industry is sufficiently competitive and we can think of Heathrow and Gatwick and Stansted as competitors, even if not uh, in, a, in a perfect way, um, that that would then get passed on in other ways to, well, airlines and ultimately um, us, the tourists. So that would really be a matter of um, there being enough competition in that industry. And um, yeah, but otherwise, uh, whichever way you do it, uh, whichever type of auction design you have, the main point of it is to really get an idea of willingness to pay of different airlines because if, say, British Airways manages to outbid American Airlines for a particular slot, that tells us something. That tells us something about their business expectations, their confidence in filling up those planes, filling up using that slot properly. And that is something that whoever else uh, allocates slots wouldn't know. The regulator doesn't know that, we don't know it. Uh, but they probably know something about themselves that we don't know. And we need to get that information out of them. And the idea is just to have a mechanism to extract that information. Very Hayekian in premise here, which is yeah. pr prices, uh, even if you don't have a full understanding of why, carry with them and kind of implicit knowledge mm -hmm. as, as the, the uh, effective mechanism. I suppose the, the next issue I think about in this context in terms of design is this political question, which I think there's a lot of temptation from the government. And you've seen this in various reviews 
about whether or not they want to prioritise certain things like domestic flights, for example, mm -hmm. um, and whether or not it's just inevitably going to lead to some kind of politicised allocation. Yeah, so that is the thing. Uh, there is a lot to be criticised about the current system. Uh, I've criticised it. Uh, I know you have too. And um, But it is not the worst of all worlds. We could imagine it being replaced by something worse. And that would be because the one good thing about the current system is that it is rules based. It is for that reason inflexible, but it's not that somebody can say, okay, today I, I'll, I'll, I'll give uh, the, the slots to this airline because I like them uh, or because I think we should have, it's not that you can, uh, you, you can use it for, all, for your own political benefit or your own political preferences. It could be that they, now replace it with something much more politicized and that could mean uh, one question in that in that consultation is where they say how about if we prioritize domestic flights simply because we think domestic flights are good uh, and it's a very weird section because they start by saying we don't want to second guess consumer preferences we don't want to interfere with what the airlines do but then go on to propose precisely that uh, by saying there should be um, a, a certain number of slots reserved for uh, flights from, well, in practice it would be mostly from London to somewhere in Scotland. Uh, well, so you could say this is basically, this would be a form of regional development policy, um, a form of, of leveling up. They think people should fly to Scotland more often. Uh, now I've, <laughs> I've no problem with, uh, with that if people want to fly to Scotland, but why should the state um, somehow Subsidizer, which it would uh, by reserving slots uh, for domestic flights, you would effectively make them a bit cheaper than they would otherwise be at the expense of international travel. You would make international travel a bit more expensive than it would otherwise be for purely political choice. I mean, it does seem kind of like a, a bizarre political choice to make if at the same time the government talks a lot about net zero and reducing environmental yeah. impact to be encouraging people to fly more domestically. Um, I think in France, they've gone to the other extreme and banned domestic air travel. Um, mm. if it's not uh, a long enough distance. And it seems like it's uh, kind of quite contradictory there. Um, the other thought I had as well, um, looking through the consultation, was I suppose the priority put on um, using uh, kind of an auction process to encourage the development of smaller airlines to compete with EasyJet, to compete with BA, uh, British Airways, and whether or not the, the, the priority of the, the system would, would be um, to in itself, in, in the government's view, encourage competition by encouraging the creation of a lot of smaller airlines to compete with mm. the, the bigger beasts, and whether or not that is the, the kind of direction that it seems rational to go in if, you, if what you want is more competition. Yeah, it would defeat the purpose of having an auction if you said we're going to have an auction and then we will reserve slots for particular purposes. The whole point is that you have an, an open-ended process, that you don't know in advance what's going to happen because you want to access that information, that uh, willingness to, to bid from the airlines. Uh, the whole point is we don't know that, we need to observe their behavior. That's what's going to tell us uh, whether they're sufficiently confident that they can use a slot properly. Um, and. If you have that open-ended process, that uh, knowledge gathering process, you could say, and then also impose rules based on the outcomes you want to see, uh, then then you're just defeating the whole purpose of of having an auction. Um, so that would that would be a problem if they did that. But it is also already a problem in the current system. So I mentioned uh, these um, the way the regulator 
at the moment allocate slots. It's mostly on the basis of who used them before. The rest uh, is mostly where they try to deliberately give slots to small airlines. Um, because that's how they want to get some competition into the system. The problem with that is that that's not necessarily how markets become more competitive. Uh, that doesn't always have to come from small players, from, uh, from having millions of tiny players. Uh, it can just mean that, say, a small, smallish company becomes medium-sized, scales up a bit, gains a few percentage points in market share. That can make... So that's what we've seen in, uh, in the retail sector, where 10, 15 years ago, uh, the big four had a mass, controlled a massive chunk of the market. They no longer do, that's changed. But it wasn't new entrants, really, which changed that. It was the likes of Aldi, Little, and Netto uh, gaining a few percentage points and becoming medium-sized players. That could well be the best option in airports as well. That uh, It doesn't need to be a new startup company. It could be, say, uh, at Heathrow, you could have American Airlines, Lufthansa, well-established companies, big players elsewhere, just not there. It could be uh, a good outcome if rather than having, uh, I think they now have a market share there of 3 4% or so, if, that, if they could extend that to something closer to 10% and you would have a variety, 3, 4, 5 uh, medium-sized players, that could be a good competitive outcome rather than uh, having dozens of tiny ones trying to compete with the, the one big beast. Yeah, it seems often when, it, when people think about competition, they, they go to the, the kind of perfect competition model yeah. with many sellers and many buyers. But I'm not sure that applies particularly well to aviation, where there actually are genuinely very high fixed costs. Mm -hmm. So you need a lot of capital and there's, there's only so many kind of at that level of capital intensity that you can develop so many airlines. But also there's, there's probably benefits to scale. Um, yeah. of, of having a large number of flights from the same airport because that is particularly a airport like Heathrow is that what kind of enables the connections so um, connecting flights through, through Heathrow and then on to other European destinations I think um, there, there's a particular argument from uh, Virgin Airlines that, that they wanted to be prioritised when it came to new slot allocation at Heathrow so that they compete with BA mm -hmm. now I'm not an advocate for Virgin Airlines, I'm kind of very indifferent about whether or not Virgin Airlines is bigger or smaller. Um, but I think the government should probably take the same approach in this sense, which is it may, the ideal um, outcome at Heathrow may be two airlines or three airlines with a relatively big market share um, yeah. and then a whole bunch of smaller airlines on top of that. And those three airlines could actually provide more significant competition than just trying to have a lot of different airlines um, and, and have a, a much worse kind of user experience or user cost even if yeah. you just have a lot of different airlines rather than a small number of uh, larger ones. Yeah, exactly. So we should not start with the textbook, uh, the, the Econ 101 textbook model, perfect competition, and assume that if we had a market-based slot allocation process that that would lead or that it should lead to having 100 tiny airlines. Uh, it could well be that a degree of concentration is good, that you have um, three, four, five dominant ones that are maybe big enough to compete effectively with each other, and then some smaller ones for, say, more niche routes, uh, places where you wouldn't normally go to. Uh, but, yeah, um, especially at hub airports, there are economies of scale in that uh, part of the business model is that you get people in from a number of places. That's long been uh, Heathrow's main strength. Uh, I think the first time I flew via Heathrow, that was uh, the reason that... Um, 
they were collecting people from from all over Europe and to get um, to fill a plane that can travel to Central America and uh, and, and that is uh, the hub effect and, and um, for that you need you can't do that if you have um, say half a percent of the slots you need you need a certain minimum threshold and you need slightly bigger players for that uh, b- before we finish up I want to get your thoughts on the other underlying question here which is uh, the reason why British airports are so congested is, as you said towards the start um, some of the most congested airports in the world I think Gatwick is the single busiest one runway airport in the world and, and Heathrow is amongst the busiest and, and certainly um, the, 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 let's put this way they get, they get good value out of those um, out of those runways is, is underlying this not though an issue of, of ultimately uh, a lack of of capacity yeah. at airports in the UK. Absolutely, yes. Uh, so if we had, if you could build unlimited uh, numbers of runways, we wouldn't be having this conversation <laughs> because it would then just be a minor issue. You, you would still, of course, uh, some would be some slots would be more desirable than others, even if you had twenty-seven runways in a row. Uh, but still, it, it would be a relatively, it would be a footnote, um, and that would definitely be say as long as they are as congested as they are now. Um, even the perfect, the most efficient allocation system is only going to get us so far. There is this absolute scarcity that lots of people want to fly and we still have the the physical infrastructure of the 1950s and it is an oddity. We have this fantastic growth sector um, which, so in our lifetime, air travel has been transformed from a luxury good to something that uh, that, um, people on regular or low incomes can consume on a daily basis and it's it's really been quite transformative and we're boycotting it we're, we're throttling it uh, this could be a much bigger growth sector and the the third runway at Heathrow that was already approved by Gordon Brown I think that was one of the last things he did as as prime minister and then David Cameron one of the first things he did was to just cancel that again just to come up with a few years later saying oh actually we need a third runway <laughs> at Heathrow we are well and uh, still nothing has happened. So yeah, ultimately that's uh, capacity. That's where the solution has to come from. Build runways to accommodate uh, the, the, the demand for it. Yeah, and I would say not just the third runway at Heathrow, but of course um, the second runway at Gatwick. Yep. And it, it, I think it was an either or debate a few years ago, but I can't say why it wouldn't be both. There, there no, would almost certainly enough. be demand for, for the UK aviation sector for both. Sure. And well, Dr. Christian Niemitz, the IA's Head of Political Economy, thank you so much My for pleasure. your... Excellent contribution. For those who are learning more, uh, interested in learning more, um, Christian's paper is an excellent introduction to this topic, um, Terminal Problem, which is available on the IEA's website. Uh, And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. Catch you again next week.